my guest today, we recorded an interview, and I think you're going to like it for two reasons. One, he went from SDR to AE in nine months, and two, he is just an outbound badass as an account executive, and it's a big part of what has made him so successful. Before we get into that, thanks for checking out the Outbound Squad podcast. My name is Jason Bay. I'm CEO and founder at Outbound Squad and host of this podcast. Uh, my goal is to help you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an SDR that's looking to become an account executive, or maybe you're happy being an SDR and you're tasked with sending cold emails, making cold calls, sending LinkedIn outreach and landing meetings, or you're an AE that's doing both outbound and full cycle sales, you're definitely in the right place. My guest today, Anthony Natoli, he's a Strat AE at a company called Lattice, been a big fan of his content, and I'm not sure how we connected, actually. Somehow over LinkedIn, I think I saw some of his content, but one of the things that we talk about is just a couple things. So how to get a promotion to an AE, so what's involved with that, what to do as an SDR to really fast track that promotion. We talk a lot about something that's near and dear to me, mental health. And he really opened up and talked about a lot of different things around his addiction and things that he's overcome in his personal life that have helped with his professional life. And of course, we talk about prospecting. So when he was at Outreach, they had a goal to get 30% self-source pipeline. So how to find the time to prospect, how to be disciplined, and how to really scale your outreach as an AE. Because in most situations especially with reps and companies that I've worked with. If you don't self-source pipeline as an account executive, you ain't going to hit or surpass your quota. So this one is action-packed. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Anthony. We connected, of course, I've just been seeing a lot of your kind. I can't, can't remember if I reached out to you or if you reached out to me or, or what it was, but it's uh, one of those situations I run into a lot on the podcast where I've been seeing someone's stuff online for a while, but just never connected with them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's uh, it's good to be connected, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really a pleasure to be here. Very grateful. Um, I think I reached out to you um, about one of okay. your posts and I was like, Hey, I, on this personal branding journey that I've been on, I'm trying to get on as many podcasts as possible. Yours is one that I love to listen to. Um, yeah. it, it's a it's a good uh, indicator that I'm on the right path to be able to be here uh, with you. So I'm, I'm really pumped <laughs> up, man. Well, yeah, well, we're uh, we're super privileged to have you. I uh, while on the topic of personal branding, that's something I want to talk to you about because you started out. It looks like as a BDR in yep. 2015. So you're about what, seven, eight years into your sales journey here. It's a good amount of time. Um, when did you start thinking about your personal brand? Honestly, I didn't start thinking about actually executing on my personal brand until November of 2021. But it's something that I always wanted to do, right? You see folks like yeah. yourself and others who creating great content online and I wanted to be in that position where I could give back. I just was always on the sidelines, right? I was, I guess, uh, having imposter syndrome for a while of, you know, does anyone going to care about what I have to say? And then finally in November, yeah. I kind of took the leap and just started posting uh, and documenting kind of my journey uh, and haven't looked back since. I'm kind of jealous, dude, all the engagement that you get on your posts. <laughs> 
for doing this for less than a year, dude. <laughs> I would have guessed that you've been doing this for a couple of years. <laughs> I know. It's it's uh it's interesting. I, I think I've been really lucky to connect with uh folks that have big followings that uh that yeah. I've built relationships with that have helped me out along the way. And uh, you know, going on these podcasts definitely helps as well just to get my name out there. But I think the goal has always been the same of just trying to help people based on like my own journey. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. You do a great job of that. Um, from BDR to account executive, if we talk about that piece, if I'm looking at your LinkedIn correctly here, you were BDR for all of three months, it looks like, and got the promotion pretty quickly. What's the, what's the backstory there? Yeah. So I graduated college and a friend told me about this this fintech startup in San Francisco, uh, but it wasn't really SaaS. It was more so mortgage lending. And so I, it was a coin to BDR, uh, coin to AE because we we're trying to be this SaaS company. I worked there for about three yeah. years and I was making lots of cold calls. I was working with a lot of clients, getting yelled at. So I built a lot of uh, sales and business acumen of how to navigate uh-huh. tough situations, how to build that, again, thick skin, how to outbound uh, to connect with people and overcome objections. And uh, and after those three years, realized that I wanted to get into a SaaS role. Like it was always this thing of mine while living in San Francisco, friends working in mm-hmm. SaaS as AEs. I was like, I want to be an AE in SaaS. And so even though I had a AE title and I probably could have BS my way to an AE role like SMB, I wanted to do it the right way. And so I took a step back and yeah. actually became an SDR at demand base where um, I took everything I learned, applied it to being an SDR in SaaS, and then ex- was able to accelerate my way over nine months to that you know North Star goal of becoming an a-, a true AE at a true SaaS company. So um, that's kind of the backstory there. Uh, for the first three years of my career, it was really a grind and that typical hustle culture, mm-hmm. but it really did help me in my next phase of my career, which was transitioning into like that true SaaS role. Yeah. So your friend that told you about, you know, getting into sales essentially. So did you get into sales by accident? Was that not yeah. something that you really intended to do? And this just sound like a fun thing to, <laughs> to do and yeah. need some money or what? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think folks listening can definitely relate. I had no idea yep. what I really wanted to do. The plan was to, I went to school in Arizona. Yeah. I was going to move back to New York try to do some commercial real estate because uh, that's what I went to school for. I never was the smartest on paper in school, not because I don't have the intelligence, it's because I never applied myself. It was never my thing. I knew yeah. I was never going to sit behind a desk and crunch numbers. And so something my dad told me uh, from when I was in middle school, he's like, you got this street smart, this this natural curiosity, this you know, these intangibles that I think would do really well in sales. He was an old VP of sales. He now runs his own company. And so when I was approached with this opportunity, I was like, you know, let me give it a shot. And it ended up being a role where my strengths as an individual really helped me. You know, the, the intangibles, the unteachables, the, the figure it out factor, if you will, really did help me uh, in my career. So um, got into sales because I just wanted to take a shot and see what it was all about. And yeah, never looked back. So what were some of the things that didn't come so naturally to you at the beginning? Yeah, I think uh, feedback 
I, I had been a stubborn person early in my 20s. And I think that happens as yeah, you, before you mature as an individual and understand what real life is about. But getting feedback, realizing that, you know, I couldn't just come in at nine o'clock and leave at five in the beginning, right? Like I had to make a name for myself um, early on to show that I was serious about it. And I figured if I really put, you know, all my effort into it, I would get the opportunities when they would arise uh, from others. And that actually really helped me uh, throughout my career of like building that internal brand of this is the guy we can count on. But I think getting feedback was really tough. Organization, uh, organizing like my day was really tough because I never, I, I didn't learn what time management was. I didn't know how to structure my day. And, um, you know, I kind of winged it every day until I figured out a process on my own. I think cold calling was really tough in the beginning because I didn't have any training. I didn't have any training on it. Right. Uh, I was cold calling these, uh, mortgage brokers who had been in the business for 20 years. They're like, who the hell is this kid calling me? They're giving me an objection. I'm like, I had no idea what to say. So it was, uh, it was one of those things where it was scary at first. And I would get that nervous energy of like, ah, maybe I'll just like fake my way through the calls. But then I, then I started to figure out if I practice more and more, I'll get better at it. And you know, sooner rather than later, I, I started getting my reps in and uh, the objections uh, became easier to deal with. And I started having meaningful conversations and um, it just, you know, getting thrown into the the deep end when there was only 70 employees, not really, really, really any training. I had to figure a lot of things out of my own. So I was like watching YouTube videos. I was reading all those like old yeah. school HubSpot articles and how do you overcome objections? What's the best way to handle a cold call? So that was the the toughest piece for me in the beginning. Those three things. It's weird to me that there aren't a lot of other jobs like sales that are this demanding of a person skill wise that have so little training on average. Yep. I think in tech, we live in a little bit of a bubble in SaaS and that the training is usually pretty good. You know, um, most especially larger software companies have enablement department. There's a whole teams of people that are just in charge of, you know, providing enablement and support to salespeople. And it's crazy to me that you would be expected to cold call people that are 15, 20 years into their career. And they don't supply you with any information outside of here's how to pitch basically our, our stuff. It's, it's crazy. So how do you, what advice do you have for someone? Cause there's probably people listening to this podcast in a similar position that yep. aren't really given a lot of direction. What advice do you have for someone like that? Yeah, I think because I was kind of thrown into the deep end with the sharks, I had to learn on my own. And so the number one thing that I can tell everyone listening is to own your own personal development. You don't rely on what's available or what may not be available to you in your current role because there are so much information out there and really, really good information like the outbound squad um, to help you develop these critical skills that will have a massive impact. And so the two things that I did was I owned my own personal development and I invested in myself because I wanted it bad enough. And I realized that was what it was going to take to be successful. And I think that goes back to the what my dad told me early on is like, you had this innate ability to just figure things out. And I think that's such a critical skill 
as a sales professional, whether you're closing, whether you're prospecting, you need to be able to problem solve and think on your feet and be nimble and go out and really figure things out on your own sometimes. And so owning that personal development, investing in yourself um, and putting the work in as it relates to those two categories for sure. Yeah. I love that. I, I was fortunate as a rep, you know, we had a lot of great training, but I remember, yeah, just buy, buy the books, go to the seminars. That's, that was kind of the thing back in when I was learning how to sell and, you know, the late, what, 2008, I guess, 2007, 2008, they didn't have a lot of podcasts really. It was back, I don't know how old you are, Anthony, but that was back when you had to actually plug your phone into the computer to get a podcast (laughs) onto your iPhone. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and most of them were really shitty. They weren't, they weren't great. Um, I love that though. Invest in yourself. I think it's a really good reminder for anyone, you know, part of how you allocate your personal budget every month, a, a small portion of that should be dedicated as much as you can into investing in yourself, especially when you're young, you know? Um, so as an SDR, did they lay out, was the plan really clear for what it would take to become an AE or was there kind of some unknowns there? What was that? Because I hear different things from all kinds of different companies and every yeah. company seems to have a promise of do this for 12 months and you'll become an AE. And in practice, I rarely see it work like that. Yeah. So I think shifting gears away from that that first company, because that was, I think, an outlier. They're really just like a mortgage <laughs> finance company where there wasn't yeah. like a lot. I was like the only guy to get to be able to get promoted and they just moved me in that role. But when I went to demand base, you know, in my interview, I made it very clear, like what I wanted. And they knew I had the three years of professional experience where I was, you know, prospecting, calling. And I made it very clear of what my intentions were of like, I want to get promoted to AE ASAP, but I also want to make a name for myself first as a sales development rep to do things the right way to prove my, to prove myself, to earn that spot. And I was really lucky that there was a specific, they called it a bridge program where SDRs could get promoted to different roles like a solutions consultant or an AE. And, you know, I did really well in that role. And I, they actually, and part of this was building my internal brand. I became really close with the, the VP of mid-market sales because I was crushing it for my two AEs. You know, we had the you know, they gave me the best, uh, the uh, mid-market patch in SF. And I took advantage of that and, and set up my AEs for success. And so they talked about me to the, the VP of mid-market sales. Six months into the role, a uh, an AE opportunity opened up. And mind you, I'm, I'm the new kid on the block on the team. So I'm coming in super yeah. hot, crushing it. Everyone's looking at me like, who's this new guy? That we People have been there for a year, year and a half. And the mid-market... VP wanted me to get promoted after six months, but um, obviously, you know, there was some internal politics where that just like wasn't possible. And so I had to wait another three months, but there was a clear path. Um, But I've heard horror stories where SDRs, there's no clear path or they tell you something. um, And the reality is another thing and you have to wait a year, a year and a half. So um, for me, I was really grateful to have a great enablement team that set up this bridge program where they trained you and uh, got you ready for what they called like a panel and an interview um, to go through that process to see if you were ready to get promoted. But, you know, I'm sure you've heard stories too. Um, people don't, don't have that fortune to have that clear cut plan of what's next, but 
any advice I do have for people listening is if you're interviewing for a new role, ask about that. What is the plan? What is your program? And if they don't have a good answer, then maybe that's something to consider if a promotion is important to you. So, yeah, I want to double click on personal brand, uh, internal personal brand, because you've mentioned yeah. that a couple of times. It sounds like a big part of this, and this is might feel like common sense to some of the folks listening, but a big part of this is you were also in a position where, hey, I'm the top SDR on my team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if anyone's going to be considered for this, it's going to be the people that are performing, yeah. you know? And I don't, it's, it's be so good that they can't ignore you, you know, kind of thing. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think about your internal brand at the companies that you work for? Absolutely. And the reality is there's going to be a lot of people that hit their quota on the team. And so it's good to be your, the top SDR that's, that's definitely hitting their numbers. But when you look at two people on paper and you both are hitting your quota, it's like, what else can you do to stand out to be that, that gal yeah. or guy that's ready for the promotion that's going to be the obvious choice? And so some of the things that I did as an SDR, from day one, I was sharing like emails that maybe have worked for me in the past or like call scripts, sharing in Slack. I would be the first person to raise my hand in team meetings to volunteer or to share. When my VP asked for something, I would be the first one. I remember, I remember three months into my role, I spoke at a, a company all hands in front of 500 people. I was super nervous and uncomfortable, but I knew by doing that, everyone was going to yeah. know me. And I got kudos from the CRO and the CEO afterwards. And um, maybe I sounded like crap on the mic, but at least I got up there and did it. And that's what people remember, right? So when it came time for promotion, they wanted me because I was the guy that was doing all the other stuff that you can't teach. You can't teach someone yeah. to care and to own uh, that passion that you have to succeed. Um, and so... That's like one of my North stars whenever, you know, I've joined a new company. It's like, how am I going to put my name on the map to remember, to make sure that people know this is Anthony, this is what he's about. You know, I did that at outreach where, uh, when I joined there as an AE after I left demand base, I met with all, like before I even joined, I DM'd, you know, uh, Mark Costigal, the, the VP of sales. And I said, Hey, I'm joining in three weeks. This is why I'm excited. This is what I plan on bringing to the table. And I found out that he took that to my manager and told me, he's like, I could tell this guy's going to be, you know, a, a good asset on the team. So just doing those little things that it's the little things that make the biggest impact so that when someone yeah. thinks of an opportunity, you're top of mind. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of other ways that you can do it, but just do the little things that other people aren't willing to do because that's what it takes to really, uh, excel and accelerate in your, your career. Yeah. Likeability is such a huge factor in just everything in your career, whether that's how you sell or promotion opportunities. When I think back to my time as a sales leader, some of the top performers are not necessarily people that we wanted to promote because they weren't great for the culture. It wouldn't be great to have someone like that in a leadership position. And they're just kind of a pain in the ass to work with. Yeah. 
versus, you know, like I said, it, it's not like you you can only be one or the other. You can be both. But the people that really embody the culture, the people that really step up, like you said, um, this is such a simple thing. But sharing what is working for you, being a, like a team player, dude. There's so many people that are resistant to sharing what's working for them and in fear that other it will help other people and you know all this other stuff and you know there's a reason why I'm a big Michael Jordan fan. There's a there's a reason why throughout his career he would set up these like summer league type of games where he would invite his competition to come play and it's like yeah that helps them because they get to learn about MJ but he's also learning about them like if they're better it's going to make him better and there's just there's this abundance mindset you know around stuff and I don't know. I think that's really, really great what you shared there. It's again, you use the word obvious. That's where that comes to mind for me too. It's like, make yourself the obvious choice. I don't want to be that top performer. That's hard to work with. Yep. Don't want to do that, you know? Um, okay. So if we kind of shift gears a bit, becoming an AE, what was your first AE job? Like in the first two or three months, what, uh, I guess similar question to the SDR. What what didn't come naturally to you in the in those first few months? Yeah, it felt like oh shit moment in a way <laughs> because uh, you know you don't know what you don't know until you until you know it and experience it. Yeah, and so yeah, you can you can get a lot of the training um, prior to being in the role. But there's no better teacher than experience itself. So, you know, uh, I think what I we struggled, what I struggled with initially was doing really good discovery and not making it yeah. about how cool our product was and how you can click this button to do this. I had to really shift my mindset to say, okay, we're here to just see if we're a fit or not. But for me, I was so excited in the beginning. I was like, oh, every every company that we talked to, they're gonna, it's going to be a home run, right? Happy years galore. I didn't have that um, uh, that natural curiosity and not, not in a way being like a pessimist, but objectively, you're supposed to really understand how is this deal not going to happen and you should be DQing early. And so like yeah. in the beginning, I didn't, understand the importance of true discovery and the the goal of really finding out is this even worth the prospect's time is it worth our time and so um i think i led with a very seller centric mindset making it all about me and what i wanted and i think it goes back to that abundant mindset because we'll, we'll probably get into this but until about a, a few years ago my i viewed my self-worth purely based on my performance in the role. And so when mm-hmm. I didn't have that early success, I uh, when I first started as an AE, I started to come off like very needy and like I need these deals to prove like that I can do this. Um, and so like that piece didn't come come naturally to me until I had to, you know, hit my head against the wall a number of times to to realize like hey, this approach is just not working. People don't like working with needy sales reps that are having this commission breath that only care about what they have to offer. I've got to try to do things a different way. And so I think because I had never done the role before and I never experienced it, I didn't really 
understand what it meant to have that buyer centric mindset going into calls and making sure I understood um, what the other person on the, uh, the the person on the other line really cared about and if we could even help or not. You know, it was all about me. Yeah, all about Anthony. Yeah, let's dig into that. It's something we talked about in preparing for this uh, this conversation. You said my self worth was basically tied to your sales performance. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and kind of the journey that you went through. Yeah, so I think it stems stemmed from a young age um, of this this lack of self worth for some reason, and everything that I was a part of externally drove my internal reality. And so, um, ex- for example, like I needed to be the most outspoken. I needed to have all the, all the friends. I needed to, you know, be the the class clown to get validation from others to feel like I was good enough. And I think that's why I, yeah. I clinged on to sales so early on is because what better way to feed your ego than to crush it in your role. But that comes when you have that view, that vantage point of your external world driving your internal role, uh, world. It's a very, uh, it's a very scary place and dark place to be if you're not doing well. And so, um, you know, whether it was in my relationships, my, um, my work, my finances, I, I felt like I had to prove externally that I was good enough to make myself feel good enough internally, rather than being confident and owning who I was. Um, I was externally dependent. And so, um, you know, that hurt me for a while when I became an AE because in the first few months when I was ramping, it was the first time I didn't really do well. And so I went down this spiral of like self-doubt and negativity and self-sabotaging. And I looked to other sources to feed that self-worth, whether it was partying, whether it was gambling. um, And it brought me down a really dark hole. um, And I basically had to hit rock bottom to realize that I cannot think or live like this anymore because it's just not sustainable. Like I can't continue. It, it became like so stressful that I was having panic attacks about, you know, not getting invited out by friends or, you know, relationships with, with women in my life or my family. I was just like creating these crazy stories and narratives in my head that I wasn't good enough. And if something happened, I took it personally. And um, if I didn't do well, in my role, I was like, I'm going to get fired and creating these crazy stories in my head. And, um, and so I got to a point where I needed to make a change and, you know, I'll pause there because I think that's kind of a lot to unpack as like the back half of what, what my career was like. And, you know, obviously I did that the 180 in the last three years, but you know, it, it was, it was tough for a while. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing all that, man. When you, uh, when you're used to being a top performer, I went through something very similar as a first year sales manager and you don't do well, it fucks with your head, man. <laughs> oh yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're so used to doing well and for things always working out because you put in the work that when they don't, it just, there's this loss of like a sense of um, feeling out of control. Yep. You know, like I don't have control over the things in my life. And, uh, a quote that that reminded me of is uh, a guy, Michael Port. He always says, 
business problems or really personal problems in disguise. And what you just outlined around abundance, it sounds really simple to say, oh, you need to have an abundance mindset. But what I'm hearing from you is that because you didn't really have this in your personal life, it just bled into like how you sold and how you operated in your career. You know, do you look at business and personal, do you look at those two things being very connected? I really do. I really do, man. And it's, uh, it's funny you say that because everyone says detach from the outcome, detach from the outcome, but we don't realize that like there's certain things that happen in our life that affect how we show up at work yep. in our personal life, you know, people have trauma as at, as at a very young, young age that seeps into their subconscious. For me, that was not having my, my bio, biological dad around. And from a very young age, I always thought like, why am I not good enough? And that carried on as I got older. And that drove yeah. that feeling of lack of self-worth drove how I showed up with people and it ruined relationships. It ruined my reputation with people because I was so insecure that I never thought enough was good enough, right? So I was always chasing yeah. and that affected how I showed up as a sales professional. But when you can finally start taking care of yourself and letting your core values and your integrity drive your external, knowing that regardless of what happens, I'm still going to be okay because I've got gratitude and I got perspective and I have these core values that I believe in and my actions are in alignment with that, that's when things change. But until that happens, it's really hard to detach from the outcome, right? So it's it's not yeah. just it's not just detaching from your quota. It's like you got to take care of yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. You've got to do the work. Um, you've got to get clear on what are your core values, what are your integrity and your actions need to be in alignment with that. And it took me three years and it took me hitting rock bottom to do that. And so that was one of the reasons I started posting on LinkedIn in the first place. It's like, I want to help people realize that, you know, you don't have to hit rock bottom to get to that point where you can start, yeah. you can start honoring that, that trauma that you went through and you could start healing it and you can start taking the steps that are necessary to start to, um, you know, use those flaws, if you will, as your superpowers to, own who you are and be confident in who you are and um, let that drive how you show up um, and, and just, you know, not apologize to be who you are. Yeah. No, I love that message, man. I think the lesson there is if you have personal stuff like that in your life, like it really pays to figure it out. Yeah. You know, I know we're both big proponents of therapy. I've been going to therapy, I think for almost four years now, and it's one of the best investments. I mean, most people's insurance covers it now too. I mean, I get to see a therapist for $20 a session or whatever the copay is. You know what I mean? It feels like an absolute steal. But if you have stuff in your personal life, I guarantee most of that is going to spill over into your professional life. And this is the stuff that no tactic or strategy will help you overcome being too desperate or needy in a sales situation. You know what I mean? Most of us are not great actors. So it's kind of hard to hide. You know, what if so our true. intentions are, and I, I don't know about you, I don't want to have to hide my intentions. Yeah. I don't, that's, that sounds, that sounds stressful to me, you know? Yeah. And it's um, a, it's a, it's a, it's a shitty feeling too, to close your laptop yeah. and realize that you got, you know, that stuff to figure out. And so, bef- you know, just last thought on this is 
the practical steps are to um, become aware of a certain area of your life that is not up to standard. For me, you know, I realized I had a gambling addiction. So I had to accept that about myself. So I had to become aware, mm-hmm. accept it. And once I accepted, yeah. I had to let go of the control that I could figure it out on my own. And then I needed to have the courage to ask for help. So it's awareness, acceptance, liberating from that, letting go, and then having the courage to, to ask for help. So that could be that, that framework can be applied to anything in your life that's not up to standard to fix. So if you need help in at work, don't be ashamed of it. Accept that, hey, this is an area that I need to improve. And people appreciate and respect when you can own that. And you have cur- it takes yeah. courage to ask for help. It takes courage to go to therapy. It takes courage to invest in yourself. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but once you start down that path, things start to change little by little, day by day. Yeah. I, so that was awareness, acceptance, courage, you said? Yeah. So it's awareness, acceptance, and then there's a phase of like letting go control that you think you can do it on your own and then courage. Um, And I learned that in uh, my 12 step program from Gamblers Anonymous. I'm not saying everyone should go read the 12 steps, but the principles can be applied um, to anyone. And it's why it's such a powerful tool for addicts that overcome these crazy addictions. It's because it works. Yeah. The letting go piece I mean, you can even just apply this to someone just in their job as a sales rep with their manager. There's so many people that have so much shame around asking for help. And I relate because I kind of grew up in an old school kind of environment, you know, where I feel like, you know, be a man, take care of your shit, you know, don't, don't ask for help, like be a lone wolf, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't, doesn't serve us. Um, Let's shift gears into... Being an AE, one of the things that you do extremely well is, and it's a huge trend right now just in SaaS, which I'm super grateful of. It keeps me busy, obviously, with with, with work. But, but um, it also, I think, allows reps to feel more in control of their destiny. And that's self-sourcing their pipe. You know, doing outbound, being able to you know balance as an account executive my sales pipeline and doing outbound and feeling the top of the funnel. So one of the things that, uh, was a big initiative at outreach when you work there was 30% of our pipeline. We're going to self-source. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and you know, kind of how you contributed to that and how you think about self-sourcing your pipeline as an account executive? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I've been blessed enough to be in roles where prospecting never went away. So like I had to keep doing it. It was just a thing. And so, yeah. um, and because I was successful and as, as an SDR, it was always been my strongest skill. Um, and so that's why I love talking about it. And so thanks for bringing it up. But yeah, at Outreach, we had this initiative where, you know, in order to scale, you have to start having some pipeline coming from AEs. And so um, we had to develop a way to uh, make AEs want to prospect, but also make it sustainable because we're all very busy. And so we developed this uh, method called uh, 2100s. I'm not responsible for it. My, one of my, uh, old VPs, uh, comes from Salesforce was responsible for it. And he basically said every week you select two new accounts and you sequence 10 new people total. And at the end of the week, you have zero overdue tasks. So two new accounts, 10 people, zero overdue tasks at the end of the week. And I took that to a, a, 
different, um, I took that in stride and made it my own where I, instead I, I started focusing on five accounts per week because I had mm-hmm. the, I had the bandwidth to do so Two, the 2100 was just a North star to hold us accountable. So I think number one is you have to have a, a set goal as a framework to hold yourself accountable. And then you need to break down every single day. How are you going to execute the controllable inputs? And so my time blocking is very niche. So I took the the 2100s and turned into like, okay, how am I going to operationalize this for me? And so like I niche down my time blocking. And so I would say on, you know, Tuesday from nine to 10, I'm going to, that's when I'm going to literally go in and put people in a sequence and outreach. And then from 11 to 10, I'm going to execute my call tasks. So there are very specific call blocks or sorry, a very specific uh, blocks of tasks. And so what that allowed me to do is two things. Not every day looked the same. And so at the end of a Monday, I would look at my calendar on Tuesday and I would say, okay, these are the meetings I have. Here are going to be my prospecting blocks around those calls. And so I didn't make an excuse that I have all these calls. I found the time, the white space of my calendar. And then I had to do, I had to practice discipline to actually execute on those, those tasks every week or every day. And ultimately what ends up happening is if you focus on the controllable inputs every day, if you actually make your calls during the call block and if you actually sequence five new people a day or whatever your North Star metric is that's controllable, the results will end up taking care of themselves. And so by following that that framework and that system, you know, the meeting started to roll in is because I was focusing on the things that were in my control. Um, and so, you know, I would select five new accounts per week. I would use, you know, sales nav to find the people that I was going to sequence. I then developed a very persona, uh, very specific, relevant persona messaging that I would, that I would deliver to them. I was, um, I was using a lot of touches early on in my sequences. So I would do like three touches on day one, three touches on day three. But because I was using different channels on those touches and there was relevant messaging, it decreased the time it took for me to get a response because I was doing it earlier in the sequence. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about kind of the, the initiative, how I operationalized it, and then how I actually went and executed it. Um, but the net here is for AEs listening, there, there's no excuse not to prospect. You have to, uh, you can't rely only on your SDR. You have to own your pipeline. And the way to do that is to get very specific on your goals, not only for the week, the month, the quarter, but daily micro actions that will get you to those, those end goals. And so, um, you know, I was able to generate like over a million in pipeline as I was ramping and that led to five new logos closed in, in, in the year, um, all because I focused on the daily actions uh, and owned my, owned my pipeline, Jen. Yeah, I love this, dude. So you're essentially doing a five by five. Yeah. Is what I've heard a lot of people call it. Yeah, five accounts, five prospects each. And then your goal each day would be to sequence uh, five new people. Yep. Uh, so one new account's worth of sequences I'm going to start each day and then I'm going to have the follow-ups and that sort of stuff. How many hours a day would you say that you blocked off for outbound? 
Yeah. So it definitely, it definitely, um, differed per day. So there would be some days like on a one, like Tuesday, I may have like three demos and two disco calls where I can only do like an hour a day, but I would still make the time, you know, like I think a lot of people show up every day and they kind of wing it. And so the night before I look at my calendar and if it's an hour I have to block, how can I use that hour most effectively? What is the number one task that I can do during that hour? So for me, it was like executing my calls and my emails because I want that I want to I want to increase my surface area to in, to increase the likelihood that I get a response. So I'll use that hour to my uh, to my advantage. Then 4 p.m. rolls around on Tuesday. I see I don't have a lot of calls. So what maybe more admin type prospecting activities like research or actually sequencing can I do on Wednesday? Right. So I think for AEs because you have a uh, another aspect of revenue generating activities, which is moving pipeline forward, you have to find the days where you can batch your tasks um, and the days that you don't have a lot of time. What are the activities that are those $1,000 type activities that you can take advantage of for the limited time that you do have? Which is going to be picking up the phone probably for most people, I would imagine. 100% picking up the phone yep. and then sending that, that follow-up email. Yeah. So realistically, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking probably five to 10 hours of someone's week, depending on how busy they are. Yep. Would be I think that's prospect. Yep. I think that's definitely in line with, and it's in line with what I'm even doing now at Lattice. Um, and it's interesting because they also have an initiative for AE outbound. So I've been able to come in. That's been part of building my personal, my internal personal brand. You know, I told that story about how we did the same thing at, at Outreach and I'm kind of helping lead the charge of, you know, building that AE outbound muscle for the upmarket team. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, the time's there, right? Like I replaced scrolling Instagram and doing random stuff and scrolling LinkedIn with, you know, just go make some calls instead. You know, it's, it's there. You just have to have the discipline. If it's on your calendar, it's like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't not show up to a, a, a VP meeting with, if it's on your calendar. So why would you ignore, you know, the, the, the very specific prospecting block on your, on your calendar, you know? Yeah. In a way, this is a lesson I learned. One of my uh, old, uh, I was uh, one of the partners at the company I used to work for the way that he explained that was, you know, you're showing more dignity and respect towards someone that you don't even know than towards yourself. You know, like the most important appointments to follow through with are the ones that you make with yourself. hundred percent. You're the most important person. You know, you mentioned not being able to pour from an empty cup. It's like, dude, you got to fill your cup up first so that you can show up for other people. Yeah. I literally have a uh, block on my calendar that says, uh, lunch and then get outside. And it's like, mm -hmm. I, I'm very specific with how I spend my time and I'm specific, but I'm also very intentional, you know, because I yep. know if I do the, the right things every single day, when I close my laptop for the day, I feel so much better. I feel in control. And it goes back to what we said earlier. It's yeah. own, own your personal development, be intentional, focus on the things you can control and, you know, let go of the things that you can't. And I think, you know, we lose sight of that as sales professionals because we're so focused on hitting quota. We forget about like the micro actions that it takes to get there. Yeah. I want to talk to you and sort of end on mental health. Yeah. Um, 
couple of weeks ago, I had a, it doesn't happen often, but I had this, like I had to take time away from work and reschedule some meetings, all this other stuff. Cause I was feeling really anxious and it wasn't even about anything in particular. I just realized I had too many plates spinning. You know, I just started Ethan. He's my first full-time person, you know, at the company. I'm trying to get a book out. There's all this other kind of shit that we're doing. You know what I mean? And yeah, and uh, I had to really step away. And what it made me do was really prioritize a couple things where, hey, when I get up at five in the morning, I'm not going straight to work. The first hour of the day, I need to spend getting a quick workout in, you know, t- looking after my mental health and taking care of myself. And I don't know what, for me, I just, that was a good enough why. I just never want to feel that again, you know? So there's stuff that I try to work in. One of those is an hour break in the middle of the day. And I'm just kind of curious for you, because you mentioned one already, getting outside. What are some of the stuff that you do on a daily, weekly basis, rituals, things like that, that you do to sort of look after your mental health and take care of yourself? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. Something you said that stood out to me was never wanting to feel that way again. That is like my my North star and my why, you know, I, I, and that, uh, goes into what I'll say next is I do a daily gratitude practice where every day, um, I try to do in the morning, but if not, like I'll, I'll do it throughout the day where I just like take a, take a seat, write down three things I'm grateful for. Like this morning, what did I write? I have it somewhere here. I wrote down Spending quality time with my family and dog because I'm at my family's house right now, house sitting, the hot sun, access to water, food, and fruit, and a steady paycheck. And like those Mm. things, I could be thinking like the worst things, but if I write those things down, realize how lucky we are. Um, and, And there's so many people that are struggling way worse than us. And it's like, it really puts things in perspective. So I, I like to start with gratitude some, some, some form of movement, whether that's like some stretching meditation. I love my Peloton. Um, I think being intentional with, uh, making sure you speak to your loved ones, whether it's family or friends, um, getting outside, listening to, you know, daily affirmations, speaking daily affirmations, whatever you need to do to get yourself in alignment with like your core values and your integrity to start the day, to remind yourself of the present, to yeah. eliminate, to eliminate thoughts about the past, to eliminate, eliminate thoughts about the future. Like that's my goal is like, how can I get grounded and present into the now? So like this morning, I know I, I have a you know big call coming up with a, a, a C-level executive. I needed to do things this morning to ground myself. So like my mind wasn't racing about that call that Right. So it's all about just like doing the things that make you feel fulfilled and full um, and full of joy in the morning before you go right to right to work. Um, And then make sure at the end of the day, too, you reflect. Right. Oftentimes, like we make a bunch of calls, we send a bunch of emails, but we don't monitor our progress. Like even if you don't book a meeting, write down like, hey, I, I actually executed during my call block today. Like that's a win. Most people ignore yeah. the call block and they're just like, yeah, put it off to tomorrow. So celebrate the small wins, um, honor progress instead of striving for perfection and really tap into to gratitude. Those are the, those are the big ones for me. I love it, dude. Honor progress. That's a really good one. Just um, peace in the progress. What about out of time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
We're about out of time. I got a couple uh, rapid fire questions for you. All right. Let's do it. So the first one, I just asked this for fun. You don't have to actually choose, of course, but it's kind of cool to hear what people say. Um, if you had to choose between phone, email, and social, you know, for outbound, what do you pick and why? Phone, it's the quickest way to get information and to book a meeting. Yep. What is something you believe about sales that most would disagree with? That you don't have to, you can work less, you can work less and have better results. That's an interesting one. We, re- we could record a whole podcast on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and lastly, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself as a rookie salesperson? Give yourself grace and make sure you're taking care of yourself outside of work. Those are the two because it's, it's very hard and easy. It's very hard to be a new sales professional, SDR, BDR, AE, and get wrapped up in the, in the performance and, and tying, tying your, your worth as a person to that performance or lack thereof. So make sure you don't lose sight of what's important to you outside of work, whether it be hobbies, family, traveling, food, whatever it is, make sure you're filling your cup first. Um, so you can show up abundantly, uh, with your, with your manager, with your prospects, your teammates. Um, so that's, that's what I'd uh, say to that. Love it, man. This has been great. Uh, where can people go to connect with you? You post a lot of great content on LinkedIn. You have a newsletter, you do a little bit of coaching on the side. Where can people go to connect with you and, and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah. Shoot me a note on LinkedIn. Um, I try to post content that just based on my, you know, experience and um, talk about mental health. And I have that newsletter that goes out once a week, which is like one quick actionable tip that uh, I've learned along the way. Um, but yeah, go to my LinkedIn, bunch of resources there. Um, and I'd love to love to answer any questions that I can. So shoot me a DM uh, if you want. Yep. And that's Anthony Natoli. Make sure to check him out on LinkedIn. Subscribe to the the podcast if you're not, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, all that good stuff. And uh, Anthony, it's great having you on. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it, man.